after going through that experience, I am so much more careful about asking people about children. Like somebody gets married, oh, are you guys planning on having kids? And on the back end, you have no idea what they're going through. Welcome to The Defense Never Rests with Morgan and Akins, your monthly dose of uncommon sense about all things legal and some that are not. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Defense Never Rest. I am your host, Trisha Baxter, and today we're talking infertility, a tough topic, but I think so important to talk about. Joining me again is Talar. Hey, Talar, how are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. I love you. You know that, right? You're my my favorite co-host. You know what? Um, it never gets old hearing it. So you can keep telling me over and over and over again. And it is my birthday today. So happy it's a very birthday. Special day. Thank you. Thank you. I wouldn't be here without it. I, right? <laughs> yeah, it's a big deal. That's why deal. we celebrate. That's why it's we celebrate. It's a big deal. But let's talk infertility. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that, that dovetails really well, right? Infertility, you, birthday. Yeah, you planned that out, didn't you? I didn't, but yeah, right. let's proceed. So yeah, we we decided to do this episode. It was actually brought to my attention by one of the uh, as a possible topic by one of the guests today. So let's talk about the two guests. First is Jackie Harunian. She's a family law lawyer. She really reached out and said, "Look, the infertility issue is is really a hot topic in the legal world. That she's seeing such an uptick in and and such a growth in the industry that she was like, "We should do it. You should do a podcast on it." I said, "That's a fantastic idea." Not to mention. I think everybody knows couples, people that have gone through it for, for various reasons. So, and, and I think there's still a stigma to it. So to talk about it, I think is really exceptional. Our second guest is coming back for a second time, Sherry Bellitz. She was here before as more of a jury consultant talking about nuclear verdicts and social inflation. And she has a wealth of knowledge. She started her own business in, in that area during covid um, but she has a personal story. She herself has gone through infertility. So when we decided to do an infertility journey, when we decided to do the episode, it was just natural for me to say, hey, Sherry, you're so open about it. Why don't you come on and talk about it? And and she didn't even hesitate. So that's what today's episode is about. Um, so let's bring them on. So our first guest is Jackie Harunian. I, welcome, Jackie. I'm so excited for you to be here today. I am also excited. This is going to be a great topic. Thanks for inviting me. I love it. I love it. Um, and back again, the second time. I love her so much. Sherry Bellitz. Welcome, Sherry. Thanks. Hi, everyone. Um, you will not be hearing about nuclear verdicts. I, I might give the definition by accident when you ask me for another definition, but that's just kind of so ingrained. So great to be back. Thanks you know, for I'm sure that's me. what you do in your coffee talk in your happy hours. You accidentally spill out the definition of nuclear verdicts. Constantly. <laughs> so let's start with some background. Jackie, tell us a little bit about what you do and what your passion is. So I'm a family law attorney. I practice in New York. I'm a partner in a firm. And I actually started practicing family law straight out of law school. It's always been uh, very relatable to me because I was a mom already when I started law school. I married young. I'm, uh, believe it or not, still married. And I have seen so many changes in family law, in families, since uh, I started uh, over two decades ago. And one of the new frontiers in family law is fertility law. 
sur surrogacy law, really non-traditional families doing non-traditional parenting and bringing their families and growing their families into the world in very different ways. And a lot of it has to do with advances in medicine, advances in technology, and a lot of uh, disappearing stigmas having to do with infertility, same-sex marriages, hiring a surrogate, things that would have been very shameful and hidden, even as recently as five years ago, are now suddenly out of the closet, so to speak. And we are living in a time where people are much more open about their challenges, which I think is wonderful, uh, because I think 10 years ago, infertility in a couple might have been something that actually broke apart a marriage. It is a very stressful experience, and I'm sure we'll hear about that today. All of the stresses physically, emotionally, stresses to the relationship. But because it's been destigmatized, because there are so many new forms of advanced uh, reproductive technologies, that now there are options available, and it's, it's just easier for couples to deal with. And uh, we are, I don't know that we're seeing more infertility. I do think we're seeing older moms and infertility sort of tracks the age of the mom and in some cases, the age of the dad. Uh, we are seeing career women that are delaying childbirth. And now we're seeing same sex couples and single parents that are using all of these new options to create families in their own way. Uh, so uh, I've, I've really had a front row seat to all of this. And I really think it's amazing to have gender neutral laws and opportunities for people to really put together the type of uh, adult family life that they want to have. I love all that. I mean, like there's so much in there to unpack <laughs> that we will unpack. Um, before we get to the unpacking of that, uh, let's, Sherry, tell us about your background and your story. Okay, sure. And it would be a lot easier to talk about nuclear verdicts, but I wanted to come on here and talk about my truth. And I was inspired some from some recent posts lately and just some conversations that I've been having with people in a networking group. And it's a problem. Um, I think Jackie summed up everything really well. Um, and this is a problem that so many people grapple with. And it really is a silent stigma to it. And as Jackie pointed out, I think it's something that's getting a lot less stigmatized perhaps as science progresses, as technology progresses, as we're really sharing our stories more over social media. Um, so my professional background, for those of you who've met me on the Defense Never Rests before, is I'm a trial consultant. I am a lawyer by trade, practiced for many years, both at a firm and in-house, went back to school to study psychology, and I'm thrilled to be doing my passion, which is the intersection of law and psychology. But kind of the flip side to that, the flip side to um, all of that schooling and all of that um, career that preceded me having children was I, I, I waited. I waited a very long time. I was married very early um, in my late 20s, which is kind of unusual these days. But um, my husband and I waited a very long time to have children. I was 35 and I found myself on the wrong side of statistics and battled this for 
three years, um, progressing treatments from everything from Clomid to IUIs to then multiple rounds of IVF, um, 10 reproductive surgeries in between and five pregnancy losses. And I will say, and just because I'm at my bookshelf, I do have beautiful twins. There's a little glare on this um, that were conceived through IVF almost 10 years ago. It's their, well, actually almost 11 years ago, it's going to be their 10th birthday. So, um, and not everyone has the same resolution. And as Jackie said, there's so many avenues and there's so many ways to build a family. And that's kind of the journey that I realized, and, and we looked at everything, at donor eggs, at surrogacy, at adoption. We were in the process of an adoption, and someone said to me, because I'll talk a little bit about this, but people who you think will be the most support often are not, and they don't know what to do. It's their, it's their limitations. It's not that they are insensitive, terrible people, but they're, they're limited in their understanding and in their worldviews. And then you sometimes just get support from places that you would never imagine. And I had support from a near stranger. And one of the things that she said to me that resonated is there's so many ways to build a family. And that was kind of my mantra that kept me going all of those years. That's an amazing story. And I think the fact that you're here sharing it is so compelling and so important. There's probably so many women that can relate. I know that two of my best friends kind of went through very similar experience. One was, I think, a three or four year journey. One was a six or eight year journey. Uh, one involved them on the adoption process where they're sitting in their lawyer's office with the with the pregnant mom and the, I don't know if she was pregnant or had a kid or whatever, but in the other office are ready to take this child home and it backed out like right that in, in the lawyer's office and the pure emotional hell that that involved it i i just was amazed by her strength to go through it whether it's the hormones how it affects your body you know the the the, the relationship issues because it was such a long journey. And when she finally told me she was pregnant, she had twins too. I almost just, I think I did cry. Cause I was like, I knew how hard it was for her. So I think there's so many women that have that. So let, but let's, let's talk about the um, umbrella of infertility. And when you guys have talked about it a little bit, because it's not just, it, it's not just IUF or IVF. I don't know if I'm getting the right terms. Yeah. What, it, what know. are we talking mm -hmm. about when we're talking about infertility? Okay, so I'll just take this one from sort of a personal perspective, having gone through just about every treatment. So I was 35 at the time, and what the traditional protocol is, I think it still probably is, when you're 35, you kind of give it six months to see if it happens on its own. Obviously, this is different if you're in a same-sex relationship or if you um, want to be a single parent by choice. But if you're sort of in that traditional male-female relationship, um, you give it six months to see. Um, if you're under 35, I believe it's a year. So I was sort of at that 35 mark line and 
you kind of you you start easy. You start with testing and seeing if um it's a little bit like lawyering. You're kind of dissecting, like okay, like eliminating. Is this wrong? Is that wrong? Let's get him tested with these three tests. Let's get you tested with these tests. And everything came out um, looking fine. So you start something called Clomid, the Clomid Challenge, which is kind of like your basic gateway fertility drug makes you a little bit crazy, but um, and does make you ovulate um, a little bit more. But so, so that's kind of your gateway. Then you move into, and I should point out, and Jackie would be an excellent source to talk about this, is a lot of insurance policies have different caveats, like you must do this before you're eligible to do that. And the policies don't always reconcile with your health and the science. Like maybe X wouldn't be a good treatment for what you have, but your insurance is making you take that step. So um, anyway, the next step, and I should say, I am very blessed. I had excellent insurance coverage and that was really eased any kind of financial burden. So that's huge because it is extremely expensive. So um, then you move on to IUI, which is inner uterine insemination, um, fondly known as the turkey baster, as we like to kid about it. Um, I, do, I do have some good fertility humor because um, after a couple years hanging around there, you kind of, you, um, you get it. You got to do, do some humor, right? You got you you to make do. it. You got, you know, I was pushing my twins down the street. I live right near my fertility clinic in New York. Um, shout out Cornell. But I was pushing my twins down the street when they were infants. And I saw the doctor that did my transfer, which I'll tell you about. And he kept looking at me. And I said, don't recognize me with my pants on. So um, yeah, just, just a little humor to get through the day. But um, OK, so. We move, we move to IUI, turkey baster, everything is timed. You're getting constant hormone tests at six in the morning. Um, there are very early morning appointments. You know, you see a bunch of, a bunch of women in suits and, you know, with their blackberries at the time and everyone's just waiting to get their blood work six in the morning, rushing off to work. Um, so anyway, I was like, how, how could this not work? This is, they're, they're timing it, they're putting everything where it needs to be, they're monitoring it, like how could this not work? So four times later, it didn't work. Um, so then you move on to IVF. And IVF is, it is another job. It is so many shots a day, all different kinds of, um, protocols, depending upon your age, depending upon um, your issue or can't figure out your issue. And it's really, again, it's like a very hit or miss. So the first time is kind of done just very um, tentatively and not a lot of hormones, but kind of enough. So um, I did my first IVF cycle. It was an absolutely perfect cycle. I have to say, um, and this is kind of the stress of it, and actually has some parallels with the pandemic, I think. It really has some parallels with 
just not knowing what tomorrow will bring and just all of the uncertainty. Like if someone told me I was gonna have these twins and they'd be celebrating their 10th birthday, I'd be like, okay, you know, give me a couple more shots, whatever. I'll go like sit in this office and play in my Blackberry in the morning. But having no idea, and we, we can all relate to that living through a health crisis, having no idea, is um, the frightening thing. So I had this perfect IVF cycle, um, beautiful eight-celled embryos, just perfection. I was like a star, like the nurses were like, you're like 35, you're a spring chicken, like you're, you're doing so well, like look at these eggs and these embryos and you're just like, we love you for our statistics, you're gonna be great. So, um, Anyway, I had, um, you, you have a retrieval. I'll just take you through the process. They extract eggs. You're under um, like a local anesthesia, um, which is really quite pleasant. Um, after doing it a number of times, I really started to enjoy it. <laughs> but um, no, I have to say it's the, it's the propanol. So anyway, they, they, they extract, they um, take the eggs, sperm, mix them together and you have embryos. And I had five perfect embryos that first time. Then you have a discussion with your doctor, how many am I gonna transfer? And um, she suggested I transfer two. And you are by no means, and so many people tell me when they see my kids, oh, it's so cool, you have twins and look, you have a boy and a girl. But by no means is that the goal. The goal is actually one healthy child. It's very, very high risk, especially for someone in their mid to late 30s to be carrying twins. And I have, that's a whole other podcast, Trisha. But um, so anyway, I had these perfect embryos. I had this wonderful transfer. And then um, about seven to 10 weeks into this great pregnancy, I was in horrible pain. Um, I was rushed to the hospital, vomiting. I, they thought that I had a twisted ovary, which is one of the things Jackie can probably tell you about. You sign away, um, you know, th this, is, this is a risk you take. You can have torsion. So that's what they thought it was. It was just horrible pain. So I had a surgery. It turned out that it was an ovarian cyst that burst. Um, it was something caused by the IVF. And um, I had to have surgery when I was pregnant and I recovered with no painkillers. I didn't wanna take anything. Went back two days later and they said, you have no heartbeats. So this was traumatic. Um, and then they also said, by the way, you have this fibroid tumor that has grown to 15 centimeters from the pregnancy and we will not cycle you again until you have it taken out. So you need to get um, a DNC, which is a procedure to um, basically safely remove that unviable pregnancy. Um, you need to schedule something to get this fibroid out and then we'll look at you again and we'll cycle you. So I went home, I mean, I was destroyed, but after a couple of days, I 
made a spreadsheet. Um, go figure. I made a spreadsheet of, of all of the things that I had to do and all of the doctors I had to call and disability at work and insurance companies and just kind of step by step. Um, I got the DNC fine, scheduled the surgery for the fibroid removal. And the surgeon said to me, before I remove this, I just want to check that there's no scarring from the DNC because you can't cycle if there's scarring, but don't worry, I'm sure you're fine. Anyway, he checked, there was severe scarring. I needed another procedure. He said, I can do that when I do the removal. So I had um, everything done at once. I was I think this was July of 2009, and I was good to go again in a couple of months. And just after that, I had severe PTSD. I did not want to be in a hospital. I did not want to be in a medical center, but I was, I was getting older. I needed to keep moving with the process, and I just kept moving with the process. And each time I would have a miscarriage, each time... I IVF cycled over and over. And with each miscarriage, there was some kind of issue. And then I kind of put that lawyer brain, research brain on and just went on a quest to find answers, to meet doctors, to consult. I consulted in Colorado. I'm from New York. I consulted with all the doctors in New York, in um, Colorado with a very renowned doctor in Chicago, all over the place. But where I learned the most information was from the women that I met through a support group because so many people had been through so many things. And um, so that's kind of my story up until, up until a successful pregnancy, but that's kind of the background story. That's amazing. I mean, I, I think people don't understand the emotional roller coaster that this journey takes you on and how unique it is for each individual woman. There's not a, an infertility path isn't the same for everybody. So I, I, I appreciate you sharing that story. I think it's amazing. Sure. Jackie, what do, what do you see? I know you see other things too, like surrogacy, right? What other things do you yeah, see I mean, in the infertility? Just, just as a follow-up to what Shari said and what you just said, it's definitely painful for the woman because obviously pregnancy, miscarriage, loss affects probably the woman more greatly, but it affects the relationship too. Uh, men are affected too. Siblings, uh, sometimes there's secondary infertility. So you're going to have uh, a couple that has a very easy experience getting pregnant the first time, but then the second time there's secondary infertility. And anything that involves so much um, medical intervention. There are so many costs involved, uh, emotional costs, financial costs. It causes immense stress on the whole family. Uh, luckily, there are more and more laws coming out, including in New York, that require insurance companies to cover fertility treatments, not just for uh, heterosexual couples, but also for same-sex couples. So that's a huge um, positive change uh, that you're gonna see nationally uh, there are going to be more and more states that cover this type of treatment. And you know what? It's good for business because if you can help women, career women, high earners um, have smoother work-life balance situations and growing their families, they're not going to leave the workforce. They're going to be able to continue. Um, and and uh, you know, we all know that companies that have men and women at the top uh, make more profits for their shareholders. So uh, 
Already we are seeing that uh, high earners, CEO, women, they're getting the top level care. Everything is covered. And even the cost of surrogacy probably will be covered. So surrogacy right now is only legal in 12 states, including New York. And there are lots of reasons why surrogacy is so fraught with issues legally. Um, we all might remember the Baby M case. That was like back in the 1980s. In the 1980s, surrogacy, there were no laws regarding surrogacy. And we had this very famous case, remember with Mary Jo Whitehead, she and her husband hired a surrogate and then the surrogate changed her mind at the very last second. And what ended up happening is it was a national news story. People took all different positions regarding surrogacy and it ended up making surrogacy banned for the next 40 years, basically. And now here we are, it's being passed basically in recognition of the fact that many couples, including gay couples, um, want different ways to bring children into the world. And now uh, medicine and law have caught up to what's going on in society, including celebrity culture. There have been numerous celebrities this year that have hired surrogates. I think Kim Kardashian has had two children with surrogates. It has become completely okay to talk about it. It's become a basically uh, it's a little bit of a class issue too, because being able to hire a surrogate, a paid surrogate is costly. Uh, and it's not for everyone to do. It's not uh, something that the average person can afford to do. So it has become a little bit of a um, high class thing uh, for lack of a better term. So uh, surrogacy does involve a legal contract. There's a surrogate's bill of rights in most states, including New York. Uh, in New York, the surrogate has to be at least 21 years old. She has to go through a medical and mental health screening. And there's something called a pre-birth order that has to be signed so that there is no backing out, um, so that things are done in a more regulated way, which I really think is, is good. It's good for the couple. It's good for the surrogate. Of course, she can be com compensated. There are safeguards in place. And there are all kinds of other issues that are gonna come down the horizon, including choosing your baby's sex, which is uh, legal in the United States of America and a few other countries, not legal in other countries, which means we're gonna probably see birth tourism or other things because the United States is sort of in the vanguard regarding surrogacy. At the same time, international adoptions are really decreased in the United States right now. Uh, there, are, there is some domestic adoption going on. Um, there are so many trends going on in our society. There are fewer unwed mothers. There are fewer teenage pregnancies. Uh, everything is sort of shifting later and later. And because of the pandemic, we're gonna see even more of that. Uh, a lot of relationships these days are just virtual. So there isn't a lot of sex going on at all. It's really just kind and of- And that's a shame. <laughs> you know, so, we are talking before that how this is really all a little bit sci-fi because you can order a baby now. That's really what this is coming down oh to. Oh my God, that's crazy. Commodities and surrogates, I hate to be, it's like renting a uterus. It's a transaction now, it's all, and it needs to be regulated. It's also possibly a money-making opportunity for women that are younger, that have an easy time with pregnancy. There are many women that enjoy being pregnant. I actually, I have four children. I enjoy being pregnant. I got pregnant easily uh, each time I was able to work. And there are women that can actually um, have opportunities to make income or do good deeds for their own circle of people if they wanna be compensated for it. So there are positives. There are definitely some 
potential dark sides to it that have to be washed because you don't want a society where wealthy working women or couples can just order babies from poorer women who are likely to be exploited. And pregnancy takes a toll on the body. It takes a toll emotionally. Those things don't go away. You know, um, pregnancy complications, psychological issues, these all have to be part of it, which is why it's very good that insurance is part of the picture, medical insurance, mental and, health, professional treatment. And I wanted to follow back up on that because both you and Sherry have touched on the insurance situation. And mm -hmm. my, I, have so, well, I have so many questions, but this is yeah. the, the one from the, the first one I had, yeah. which is, is this, is infertility a problem only able to be solved by rich people, rich white working women that have insurance? Well, like, if it's a pre-existing condition, which hopefully will remain a pre-existing condition covered by insurance, then no, it's going to be covered for everybody. It's going to be covered by everybody. But everything having to do with parenting and marriage is becoming a class issue because all of the trends are showing that wealthier educated people are getting married. Uh, not so wealthy, less educated people are cohabiting more. There are exceptions to every rule generally wealthier, more educated people, not just white, but across uh, the socioeconomic and racial and ethnic groups, uh, they're delaying parenting, they're delaying marriage, they're freezing their eggs and, and having parenting more in their 30s and even 40s. In, in, in um, working class and lower socioeconomic groups, you're gonna see much younger uh, marriages. Um, and in the South, uh, and other parts of the country that are a little bit more traditional and religious, uh, there are definitely lower ages of marriage, lower age regarding parenting, but even a higher rate of divorce. So it's so fascinating to hear about the class issue going on and what, what you're seeing. Are you seeing a similar, like a racial inequality in the infertility market? Is it available more to white women than it is to black women? Well, the insurance coverage is universal, especially in New York, where uh, you know there's strong protections uh, for insurance for pre-existing conditions, and infertility would definitely qualify. So the coverage is there, but uh, in general, um, you know, if I'm going to make some generalizations, and I don't mean to offend anyone, but in general, more educated, um, wealthier couples are going to choose marriage, whereas less educated. Um, maybe minority groups, maybe lower income are maybe gonna cohabit. These are what the trends show. And there's different ages of parenting. Wealthier couples, uh, women that are working and earning high incomes tend to freeze their eggs and delay the IVF process into their 30s and 40s. You're not seeing that in lower socioeconomic and minority groups. It does correlate with education. It correlates with marriage because in traditional, um, communities, and I would include, uh, you know, in the South or in other groups, Orthodox Jewish groups or other groups that tend to prioritize marriage, uh, you're going to see lower ages of marriage for the husband and the spouse, lower rates of education, and earlier parenting, uh, more biological parenting, as opposed to using IVF. So there are a lot of trends and cross trends regarding marriage, regarding parenting. Um, for me, IVF and, you know, um, Fertility law really means that there are opportunities at later ages for parents of both same sex and, and heterosexual. And also it creates options for parents that are infertile. Um, and so it's just more opportunities to use medicine and science to become a parent in different ways than existed before. 
I was just going to comment <clears throat> on that. My observations, I'm living in Utah and I'm downtown in Salt Lake City, but outside of Salt Lake City, it's a very LDS Mormon population. And I'm old enough to be a grandmother here. And I just turned 46. And so, you know, I take my kid to school or I take him to daycare and I'm looking around going, these mothers are young enough to be my daughters. So we have a very young uh, parent population here, definitely. And so I, I can see how that would influence um, your feelings in terms of motherhood and, you know, how long you're going to your wait, whereas in other parts of the country, maybe it's not that uncommon. And I want to follow up on that because is it, is the infertility, do we call it a problem? I don't want to say it's a problem. I mean, I don't know the infertility issue. Is it only seen in older women? Is it because do we see a rise in it? Or one, are we seeing a rise in the, in the problem too? Is it because women are having babies later? Is it the age thing? Um, I, I can answer that because I've had a lot of doctors talk to me because I actually had what was diagnosed as unexplained infertility. Like there wasn't a reason. I mean, I did have a lot of other issues, but there wasn't really a reason they could pinpoint and they can treat and they can tell um, doctors can tell a lot of times it is an age thing and it's just very deceptive because we see Hollywood and we see people having, I, I mean, I was susceptible to this, like having babies so much older. I live in New York City. I mean, it is like, we are all like grandma moms here. Um, so <laughs> I, it's just a very, probably the opposite of Talar's experience. So you kind of see this and it's funny because I am a trial consultant and I study people and I study trends and I study um, worldviews and attitudes, but you can really see how it shapes how you see the world. I mean, this waiting room at the fertility clinic, I used to say they should do a reality show if it wasn't so damn sad there, but it was like investment bankers, lawyers, like everybody was close to 40, they would call me the spring chicken at 35. By the time I was finished there, I wasn't the spring chicken. I was the frequent flyer. But um, <laughs> they, they, yeah, I mean, look, this was, you know, 10 plus years ago, there was definitely more of a stigma. And um, I saw this is like a real coincidence, but I saw a post late last night. It was a man from California. He posted, I don't know if you saw it. It was like a, just a really heartbreaking post about his experiences with infertility. And I, I was up late and I said, I don't care how tired I am. I am responding. I'm sending him a DM and I'm going to like throw all the support. Like, I don't care. I'll stay up all night if he wants to chat about this and and we did chat for a long time online and um it's just i know i'm a little off track here but it's just you know how to give that support after having been through something and i feel the same way i have friends who have cancer um someone who's gone through cancer someone who's going through treatment and sometimes they say to me Shari, you're the only one that talks to me like I'm normal. And I think it really is just a result of 
like being through such a stressful, traumatic, long experience where I didn't think there was an end in sight and I completely didn't answer whatever question you asked, but, um, that's okay. That's- We're lawyers. We don't, we don't answer questions really, but <laughs> oh, yeah. can I, can I lodge, can I lodge a retroactive objection? She loves objecting on this podcast, by the I way. I just, whether it's the Still answer or the question, it. I'll just object. <laughs> Um, but I won't strike the record. We'll keep Shari intact. But you know, one of the things I realized, so I had, a, I was a geriatric pregnancy at 37. I was 38 when I had my son. And I had all these friends much younger than me going through IVF and going through all these things. And I thought, oh my goodness, I've waited too long. It might not happen for me. And I think it was less than three weeks of getting off the pill. I was pregnant. And it was yeah. like, oh, here we are. And, and this is what we've got. Um, and then five weeks pregnant, I got rear-ended on the freeway. And I was mortified. I was so mortified because I was already high risk because I was geriatric. And uh, now, you know, there was this accident. And so I was so worried that, you know, it he wasn't going to be okay. But he was okay. Here's, here's my little guy. He's a little, he's a little, he's a little older now, but um, yeah, he, he's okay. But you know, what I was going to say is after going through that experience, um, I am so much more careful about asking people about children or do you plan to have any kids? And, you know, I, I'm an Armenian immigrant and, and, that's like a very normal question, including the question, why have you gained so much weight? Totally acceptable <laughs> in that culture. Um, and hey, before or after you're pregnant, you get to ask that question. No, even before you're pregnant, it's like, you know, you've gotten really fat. <laughs> eh, okay, not, not, not cool. But it's also okay to say, why haven't you had kids yet? Or why haven't you had more kids? And um, I mean, I didn't necessarily ask questions that way, but it was common. Like somebody gets married. Oh, are you guys planning on having kids? And on the back end, you have no idea what they're going through. And I don't know, Shari, if you're referring to the, are you talking about the post from the man? He got an invitation to a bar mitzvah and, Mm -hmm. and he talks about, you know, how sad it is that he doesn't have the child to celebrate and whatever. And it's all, you know, the innocuous comments that Mm -hmm. somebody who hasn't been in that world uh, takes for granted what it means to somebody else who has struggled. And my goodness. And before I had my son, I remember I would be bawling at church every time I saw a child. I wanted a baby so badly. my, my, My maternal instinct was just like effusing into the world everywhere yeah. uh, but anyway th- my my point That's was beautiful. that um you know I just I I'm sorry to all the women I ever asked you know are you having children I really truly am and uh for everybody who who you know has suffered and gone through that and Shari my goodness talk about persistent and resilient you are one resilient mama yeah you um, are you know I just feel like, I, I mean, people people have said that, but I also look at, and this kind of goes back to the discussion that we were having where I totally didn't answer the question, but I think it's also 
look, I, I, I was privileged. I had this excellent insurance coverage. I, I had better than excellent insurance coverage because um, my husband was working at Lehman Brothers at the time. It went bankrupt. It seemed like it was the worst thing in the world. They had the best coverage. He got picked up by another company. Then we had that fabulous coverage. Then we moved over to mine. So I was, um, so that was, that was taking one stress out of the equation. Um, that was absolutely taking one stress out of the equation. Um, very supportive husband. I um, got hooked up with a couple of support groups, which were lifesavers. I am friends to this day with several of the women and everyone has built their families in different ways. Some easier, some more difficult, but everyone who has wanted a family in the last 10 years has built a family and a lot of it thanks to technology and the law. Anyway, I was at this great place for 15 years, um, a lot of it during that ordeal. And I have to say, I was, I was very open. I'm very open and I was very open and I'm shocked. people- I'm shocked that you were open. <laughs> oh. But people just, I mean, when I came back after that first miscarriage, two guys that reported to me took me out for lunch and spilled their stories. And I mean, there were wonderful people, um, including my boss. Um, and it was just a really, really, um, it was not ideal in that there were also people around the same age, like pregnancies here and there, baby showers in the office all the time. But there was, it was a really supportive group of people and it just helped me to, um, I think, I think it kept me sane going to work. Well, and let's talk about that, the openness, the stigma, because, and I'll tell you my brief, my brief journey, which was, I had a slight infertility journey, but was short and successful. You know, we did, we, my, I met my husband later in life in my, my early thirties and we didn't start to decide to have a baby till we, I was like 35. So we tried for the six months. It didn't work. So I immediately went to like, I'm not waiting. So we did the turkey baster method and we went through that three or four times and then it was successful and we had my daughter and that was the end of my journey. So I didn't have nearly what you did, Sherry, but I certainly had a little bit of the ups and downs. You know, you, we would go through a treatment and then you would wait for the two to three weeks to see if you're pregnant and it, you're on pins and needles. And then when I would get my period, I would like, I would ball. Like I would be like, ah, but I wasn't open about it. Like this is the first time I've actually said it at, in public, if you will, but my close friends knew, but work didn't know. Like I was, I, I had that stigma. Like one, why am I waiting so long in life to have a baby? Like I had that stigma. And then I had the, well, I'm, I need help to have a baby. I'm a woman. You know, why isn't this coming naturally to me? Like, so let's talk about that stigma. You know, you had it in 2008 and 2009 and your journey after that, right? So right. do you see it any different now? Is it, and I'll throw this to you, Jackie, as well, both of you, is the stigma getting better? Are we talking about it more? Are women more open now? What's, what's going on with that? I, I think women attorneys were hard on each other. I think women in general we judge each other there's the whole thing of the stay-at-home mom versus the working mom and I think it's very natural for women who work to feel like if their plumbing doesn't work exactly the right way that it's their own fault and that they somehow contributed to it 
The fact is, and this touches a little bit on your earlier question, a lot of very young women have infertility issues. A lot of them can get pregnant easily, but then they also miscarry very frequently. And it's, it's a fact because I actually went through this. I mentioned I had four children. I became a mom when I was 21. I had a fair amount of miscarriage in between each pregnancy. And a lot of times what women think is a late period is really an early miscarriage. It's just that it hasn't been proven as such in a doctor's office. And so infertility is extremely common. Miscarriage affects a lot of young women that want to be pregnant. It affects a lot of marriages because it's a loss and it's a pain to deal with a miscarriage that for a, for a baby that's very desired and wanted. And this can happen to a 25-year-old. Um, I think infertility for older couples with IVF and all of that that it is harder to get pregnant when you're older. All of this, all of this pain and loss and shame affects individuals and it affects couples and it's absolutely coming out of the closet. I think uh, Chrissy Teigen announced her miscarriage. She broadcasted from the hospital and she already had two children and it was still tremendously painful for her. And she's a celebrity with all of the privilege that you could imagine. And so when you see people sharing stories like that, when working women, can own up to the fact that they really do want to have it all, want to work, they want to be able to grow their families, and they're not going to feel ashamed of getting a little bit of extra help medically if it's available. Um, I think it is going to reduce stigma in a very powerful way and maybe unite all women um, because we all have different challenges that we have, whether you stay at home or whether you're working. Um, and certainly during the pandemic, a lot of women have lost their jobs. A lot of them are going through relationship problems. And it is a time where we're all sharing online. So this podcast is such a great thing to really unite all of these issues together. They are very universal. I really do think it transcends age and class and, and any type of grouping you could think of. Sherry, what do you think about the stigma? You saw it in your groups and you saw it in the waiting rooms, I'm sure. How, how have you seen that changed or have you seen that change? Um, I don't know if I've seen it change, but I can tell you what I learned from my perspective and just kind of gauging other perspectives of people. And, and when you talk to me about your story, Trisha, the first thing that I want to throw out is you, you were at a law firm then, correct? Correct. So I think there could be a difference right there. I was at a client side job. So there is probably, so first of all, as, as far as hours, as far as structure, we are talking very structure, very, um, very manageable, not a lot of travel, things like that. So first of all, that makes things a little easier. Also, it's not the whole, a lot of times when women are sort of getting towards that point in their career, whether it's partnership or equity partnership or whatever those big goals and milestones are, that is really intersecting with um, their infertility struggles. It is around that 35, 36 year old mark. So those are important. We know as lawyers, we were already pushed back three years stunted. And, you know, so we're kind of a few years behind. So, um, I think that there's, and I know women, and I know women in my group who they were partners or they were on the road to partnership. And that is like a whole different game than if you're sitting in the corporate office, you know, I, I did not want to be the CEO. That was not my 
career aspiration. I was very happy with what I was doing. I actually wanted to do something with psychology later. So I knew that this wasn't the end also. I think that career pressure was taken off me to be open and I didn't have to worry about being penalized, but I've heard about women, whether lawyers, bankers, um, whatever high powered um, kind of situation that they were in. So there's the career stigma, but for a lot of people, there's personal stigma. Some of it can be cultural. Um, I am, my people are very emotive. We are a very sharing culture. We wear it on our sleeves. Well, what's and, your people? Um, you got to define what your people are. Okay. The, um, the Ashkenazic Jewish people, we share. Everyone knows. Um, we are, you know, Jerry Seinfeld, Larry David. We we tell you what we're thinking. Uh, so funny. I had um, a paralegal who never met, um, and she never met anyone Jewish. She was from um, like Louisiana, like really, really remote area. And she said to me the first time she met me, she's like, oh, I thought all Jewish women were like Joan Rivers. And she's like, Are you like Joan Rivers? So, um, okay, so that's kind of, look, I'm, I'm, I'm stereotyping here. My family was very open. I'm very open. It is less stressful for me to be very open. I wear my heart on my sleeve. So, but as far, but as, far as culture, and I will say this, and this is really interesting, and I think this is actually a beautiful thing, and this is a beautiful thing, um, kind of like a silver lining during this dark time is I would sit in my fertility clinic and there were a disproportionate number of, um, you had a lot of Orthodox Jewish people, um, very, very young women. And um, then there were also a lot of people from the Middle East. People would come to New York to go to this clinic. And um, I struck up a conversation with one of the women. She was so young. She was in her 20s. And she explained to me that um, a lot of Orthodox men had, um, there was like a genetic characteristic that um, many of them shared. And, and there's you know, quite a few intermarriages and things like that, but there was a genetic characteristic that many of them shared. So they were there. She she could have been fertile as who knows what. She's 20, like one years old, but um, she was there for male factor infertility. And actually the men from the Middle East, um, also a, a lot of Muslim men from the Middle East, they share that same gene or that same, I'm probably not saying right, genetic anomaly. So I thought like, wow, here, like we're like all just kind of coming together. And um, I just thought it was, there are a lot of class distinctions. I'm not going to lie. We talked about insurance coverage. We talked about um, things like privilege, but it is an equalizer in some respects. And I did meet a lot of people in my support group and going back to stigma, a lot of it was, um, there, there was cultural stigma with some people. There was just personality, like just private, more private personalities. There was work stigma. So stigma is kind of um, very broad and I think it can be categorized really. 
Well, uh, let's talk about like what you just said triggered a question in my head that, you know, we think of fertility as a, only a female issue, but there is male infertility. So mm -hmm. Jackie, I want to throw this to you is, do you see that in your practice, the male infertility? And what do you see culturally with that? My practice is in New York. So I'm right outside New York City in Manhattan. Uh, so uh, very uh, more upscale socioeconomics. We definitely see male infertility also as a factor. A lot of the reasons that uh, Shari just mentioned, um, you're not really going to know the cause of a miscarriage unless you go to a doctor. At younger ages, couples don't tend to do that. Uh, at older ages, there is going to be an analysis of the genes and the mix of genes and whether that's causing basically a spontaneous abortion, which is what a miscarriage is. It's basically nature's way of uh, making sure that an unhealthy baby doesn't make it to full term. You're not going to really have that information unless you have an IVF clinic involved or some sort of genetic counseling. It is Male infertility is definitely a factor. Uh, what, what happens is in our society, women are blamed for having unsuccessful pregnancies. Women are blamed for not having successful marriages. It is considered the women's domain to care for their husbands and their children. And if they fail to do that and the marriage fails, it's seen as the woman's failure. And you see this much more in traditional communities, Muslim communities, Jewish communities. You're going to see more and more the onus of a failed relationship is on the woman. A failed pregnancy is on the women. Uh, if children don't turn out right, it's the woman's fault. It's the mother's fault. More and more though, if you take a step back and look at secular marriages, secular communities, gender neutral laws, it is much more um, fair minded and more open minded. And you're going to see fathers take responsibility. You see an apportionment of responsibility or blame both parents, everything having to do with the domestic sphere. It's not that the home, the domestic sphere is their domain. It's also the father's domain. So would it be inappropriate for me to bring up The Handmaid's Tale? Because I feel like that is just so relevant to what we're talking about. Have both of you seen it or, or read the book? It was a book too, right? Um, yeah, I read, I read the book in college, which it was probably completely lost on me, but I, I know the premise and um, I'd love to see the show. I'm obsessed. I'm obsessed with the show. I, it's Have you my not, favorite show on TV. <laughs> Have you not finished it? Oh, yeah. I watched it like three times through. Oh, okay, good. Because I didn't want to give anything away. Do I need to like declare spoiler alert? Yeah, declare spoiler alert. No, I, re I read the book. Um, <laughs> well, no, I mean for the audience. Oh, for Anybody okay. in the audience that wants to see it, I do not get a cut. I don't get any commission. I'm not a paid <laughs> supporter of these people. Um, but I, what I thought was interesting, man, I don't know if I should give this away. So something happens and it is unclear whether or not the fertility problem is the woman or the man. But in this Handmaid's Tale culture, it's automatically assumed that it's the woman's problem. Um, and it may or may not be the woman's problem. And you have to watch the, the show to see it because I just don't want to give it away. Right. I just don't have the heart to do that. Yeah, I, I think, but it's it's an interesting parallel because that, that is, I think Jackie's point is so well taken is that even in 2020, we still have these mindsets that, you know, of the gender roles and how that plays into fertility 
You know, it's so, it, uh, that show is very representative of that. And, you know, another illustration, I get all my, you know, information from TV because if it's on TV, then it's true, right? <laughs> always. And I mean, internet, you can always believe what's on the internet too. The interweb, absolutely. Um, so another, another program that uh, I watched that I really enjoyed, another way that Hollywood is depicting this issue is Little Fires Everywhere. And it's, you know, this young black woman who needs money in order to finish college and um, agrees to become surrogate for this couple, you know, wealthy couple. I think they were biracial. I'm not sure. But then she has the baby and it's, it's unclear whether or not she wants to go through with providing the child to this couple. And I don't want to tell you because I don't want to give it away. I'm going to become like the spoiler alert troll of, <laughs> of uh, social media. I don't want to give it away. But again, you know, the socioeconomic <laughs> issues, uh, which I mean, that's really sad to think of, you know, um, if, if that's what's happening, that's how, you know, you're getting surrogates are the people that need the money and the ones that are able to hire them are the ones that have the money. I mean, it's just, it's just reality. It's an unequal playing field. But if you take that away, then you take away the opportunity for surrogacy. Um, so I don't know what my point was. Maybe I didn't right. have one, but you know, whatever. It's okay. You know, right? It's hand, my birthday. Hands it's made, my birthday. Uh, the hands made tail is Oh, I was going to say, if you can hear me, The Handmaid's Tale is such a important thing for women to really take in and, and understand because it, it so highly correlates with gender roles, with the, with, uh, the pro-choice or pro-life issue. It's, it's disturbing. Like I, I, it's very disturbing, I think, to, to see. And, you know, I started watching, well, we could really get political on this hot, on this podcast, mm -hmm. but I think I'll stay away from what I was just about to say. But let's move on to wrapping up the episode, which is, I'll throw this to you, Sherry, a couple questions for you. Sure. One is you've had the benefit of time and hindsight. Is, is there things that you would say to people that are starting this journey that you would either tell them to avoid or you would tell them to follow? What, what's some advice that you would give? I have a couple of gems that I picked up along the way. And one of them was from a wonderful woman who I barely know. I have not spoken with her again. I was put in touch with her by someone. And one of the things that she said, and I think this really destigmatizes things, is she said, Sherry, health is not a meritocracy. And she went on to give examples the marathon runner who drops dead from a heart attack at 35 years old while there is like someone drinking and eating and, you know, 80 years old in terrible shape. Health is not a meritocracy. And I think that's something for really hard for high achieving professional women who have gone by the book and checked the boxes that this is something you can't earn. You're not better if you earn it. You didn't try harder if you earn it. This is not a meritocracy. So that was one thing she told me. And it just kind of made um, a feeling of relief just wash over me and just kind of take away any blame or any stigma to the extent that I felt it. 
that I, I think I really learned a great empathy from what happened um, those few years and, and just transferred it to other parts of my life. And like Talar was saying at the beginning, she doesn't ask those questions like, oh, are you planning on having kids? Did you have, are you having kids? Like now I'll even take that to a step. If I meet someone and they mention, oh, you know, I'm from Missouri. I don't say, do your parents live there? I don't, I say, oh, do you still have family? Is there family there? Like I'm really careful with my words and I'm not gonna say I don't slip up, but I'm really careful with my words to just be sensitive to other people. And um, I think that's, I don't wanna like tie it up with a bow and say, oh, this is like my gift from like going through hell for three years, but it really is something that I attribute to having gone through these struggles. I'm more empathetic, I'm more careful about what I say, I would never say to someone, um, like I was having this conversation with the gentleman last night, I'd never say, oh, keep going. Have you tried this and have you tried that? Because you know what? He knows and he's tried and he doesn't need medical advice from me. Sometimes I said, I said, you know what? Call me whenever you want or just write to me and I'll just listen and just tell me what I need to do to support you. And sometimes that's all someone needs to hear. I love that. I mean, I think, I think there is something to be said about walking the walk and knowing, and, and when you come across people that are, are knee deep or neck deep in the struggles that you've already had, it, it's helpful that you've walked the walk. You can relate and you can really give them a shoulder and a sounding board and they have somebody to go to that understands just there's something to be said about that so thank you for sharing that we do need to wrap up uh i really appreciate both of you guys being so open and and sharing your experiences personally professionally i think that's fantastic um before we go i'm gonna throw it to you jackie whose sound may or may not be working if it's not working (laughs) i am going to do a shout out for you but let's just see so jackie tell people where they can find you Uh, Thank you. I hope you can hear me. Uh, I'm very easy to find on LinkedIn. If you can spell my last name, you'll find me. I love to interact with other professionals and uh, colleagues on LinkedIn. I also, my firm's website is lawjaw.com, L-A-W-J-A-W.com. And my phone number is 516-773-8300. I want to again thank you for this really really timely conversation. Uh, as a family law attorney, I've been seeing um, every stigma turned on its head over the past few years, whether it's drug addiction, mental illness, or infertility, almost any issue you can imagine. And uh, it's, it's a really nice thing to talk about it and air it out. Thank you. Yeah, I, I like the fact that we're talking about it. Certainly isn't necessarily the end all be all, but just to talk about it is something. So um, what about you, Sherry? Tell people where they can find you if they want to talk to you. Okay, so you can always find me on LinkedIn. I always have that screen open, including now, Sherry Bellitz, S-H-A-R-I-B-E-L-I-T-Z. I also have a website, www.sherrybellitz.com. So you can reach me there. And if any of this resonates, if you have experienced um, 
anything that I've talked about or want to talk about or you're going through it, please send me a DM. I will get back to you. Um, we can talk, we can text, whatever you prefer, but you're not alone. So I just want to put that out there. So um, I want to just lend myself as, as an ear. Well, ladies, thank you so much. Um, and thank you to everybody for listening. We really appreciate it. So make sure you stay tuned for the next episode of the Defense Never Rest. We will see you then. Mm-hmm.